The reading tonight is taken from Philippians chapter 4, which is found on page 1181 of the uh, Pew Bible. Philippians chapter 4, um, and we're starting at verse 10, and we're continuing down to verse 19. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Good evening. This evening, we are coming to the end of our, our short series on keys of the kingdom, or keys in the kingdom. And our final key in the kingdom that we're going to be looking at tonight is contentment. So please do keep your Bibles open, and uh, we'll be referring to the passage that Kate has just read to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have said that your word never returns empty. And Lord, we pray tonight that you will speak to each one of us your truth from this passage. Holy Spirit, will you come and minister to our hearts? Give us a fresh hunger for you. Because Lord, we know that when we receive that hunger, you meet it. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther once said, Next to faith, this is the highest art. To be content with the calling in which God has placed you. And then he rather honestly added, I have not learnt it yet. Now Paul, on the other hand, is very clear that he has learnt the secret of contentment. And when we look to him, we see what a contented person looks like. And before we look at the subject more fully, it would be helpful to give you um, a little bit of context to our passage. Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians in prison. Uh, he had been there uh, for two years, around two years. He was there under false charges. And other Christian leaders were attacking him. And humanly speaking, he was in rather a bleak position. 
And yet, he is content. In fact, he's deeply joyful. And this, this letter, or epistle, is known as the letter of joy. And he tells the Philippians the secret to this paradoxical, paradoxical contentment. And he does so within the context of thanking them for the gift that Epaphroditus, one of their number, has brought to him from them. And they'd all contributed to this gift. And in those days, if you were in prison, you weren't fed in prison by prison wardens. You, had to, you didn't eat if you didn't have people who came and brought you food. And so he thanks them. And uh, I have to say that the thanks does seem to be rather a long time in coming in this letter. Uh, this is four chapters in and there's still no thanks yet. Um, and so it's at the very end of the letter, he thanks them for their gift. And although he wants them to know that he's very grateful uh, for the love that's behind it, he also wants them to know that he doesn't actually need it uh, in order to be content. So to be on the receiving end of this sort of gratitude must have been trying, to say the least. What is he saying? Paul, what sort of a thanks is that? Well, he goes on to say that he wants them to understand that his sufficiency is in the Lord and not in their ability to provide for him. He's very grateful for them and for their gift, but he's not dependent on it. He is content. And what he's doing there is teaching them a very important lesson that he's learned over time and with experience. If you have Christ... You are rich. And the Philippians were thinking that he had lost everything. But he needs them to know that he doesn't need their gift to make him joyful. He's discovered the secret to contentment. And in pre preparing for this talk, I recently googled the question, what are the top ten things people want most in life? And I was taken to the results of a survey um, that 700 people had responded to. And the question that people were asked was this. If you could say in one word what you want more of in life, what would that be? And these were the top 10 things that they came up with. Happiness, money, freedom to find my true purpose in life, peace, joy, balance, fulfillment, confidence, stability, and passion. And if you take out money and you put in everything that I need, it's everything that Paul has got. And the author of the survey wrote this, the things that we human beings desperately long for today are not only universal and timeless, but also have become even more elusive and impossible to sustain, even as we evolve and develop in this tech-frenzied, time-crushing world. Everything people have looked for down the years, Paul has in his relationship with Jesus. He had suffered more for the sake of Jesus than probably anyone else. Yet this is the man who says, I have found the secret of contentment. So what can we learn about contentment from these few verses? Well, first of all, we learn that contentment is learned. It's not our default position. I have learned the secret of contentment. Perhaps the most common perception about feeling content is that it's a feeling that one either has or one hasn't. 
and uh, therefore one either is or isn't content. And if you're not content, then something external probably has to happen in order to make you feel content. However, Paul tells us clearly, twice, in two short verses, that he has had to learn contentment. It wasn't something that came naturally to him, and it wasn't an instantaneous transformation. And it's something that we learn through walking with Jesus, choosing to honor and love and obey him day in and day out. And society doesn't really help us with this. The advertising industry deliberately tries to breed dissatisfaction with what we have so that we'll buy their products. They tell us that their formula is now new and improved so that we'll feel that what we have already is old hat and passe. They tell us that to be happy, we need more. That's the underlying message behind all advertising. You can't possibly be happy until you've used this brand of washing powder or this particular shampoo. You need this to be successful. You need this if you're going to really be fulfilled. And the thing is, if you're never satisfied with what you have, you'll never be able to enjoy life because you'll constantly be feeling that something is being withheld from you, that you're lacking. Although contentment doesn't come to us naturally, there are many things that do, things that don't need to be taught at all. Discontent and grumbling are like the bindweed in my garden. My garden has been a joy this summer, um, but you know, that bindweed doesn't need any cultivation whatsoever. It grows naturally, and if I'm not highly attentive and constantly rooting out, rooting it out, it would take over everything. But the roses and the lavender and the clematis that I love all require active cultivating. They require pruning. They require nurturing. They require feeding. And some of the metaphorical bindweed that attacks our contentment and needs to be constantly rooted out might be some of these things. First of all, comparing yourself with others. Comparison and looking over our shoulder is one of the biggest contentment stealers you'll ever find. Wanting more than we have already. What was it that the serpent said to get Adam and Eve to turn away from walking in obedience to God in the garden? He led them to believe that God was withholding something good from them. He sowed discontent into their minds right from the dawn of time. It comes seeing that some, someone else's good fortune or success is somehow coming at our expense. The Bible tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. But why is it we find it so much easier to mourn with those who mourn than rejoice with those who rejoice? Grumbling. The Israelites didn't need any sermons on how to grumble when they were led out of Egypt towards the promised land. None of those things need any cultivation at all. They, unfortunately, are very often our default. They don't need to be taught. Paul learned to be content in all conditions. It didn't come naturally, and it wasn't instant. Probably, it took a lot of hard grind in all the situations he was in to actively keep choosing to trust the Lord. And if contentment is something that we can learn, it means that there's hope for every one of us. If it's not a natural gifting, it's open to us all. We can all go after it, and we can all learn this particular secret. So contentment is something that's learned. It's also something that's not, not dependent on our circumstances or how much we have. 
verses 11 to 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And Paul isn't saying that he was unaffected by his circumstances, but that his happiness wasn't dependent on them, on what was going on around him. Contentment is about what's going on in our hearts. I don't know if you've seen the film Cool Runnings. I recommend it. It's a really fun film. It tells the story of a former American gold medalist who becomes a coach to the Jamaican bobsleigh team, I think in probably the early 90s. As the story progresses, the coach's dark history emerges. In the Olympics following his gold medal performance, he broke the rules by weighting the US sled, bringing disgrace on himself and on all of his team. Now, one of the Jamaican bobsleds, when they hear about this, just couldn't understand why anyone who had already won a gold medal would possibly think about cheating. And finally, he rather nervously says to his coach, look, I just don't get this. Will you explain? And the reply was, I had to win. I learned something. If you're not happy without a gold medal, you won't be happy with one. If you're not happy without a gold medal, you won't be happy with one. Contentment comes from within. It's about being satisfied with what we have, who we are, and where we're going. In 1 Timothy um, 6, Paul tells Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Contentment doesn't come from what we accumulate. It's about living with satisfaction at what God has given us today, now, and not craving after what he hasn't given us. And choosing to look at the Lord's provision and to worship him in difficult times is not easy. It's a challenge. I challenge you to see it as an exciting challenge. It requires a clear choice of the will to trust him when you're struggling. When you're struggling with singleness and you hear that yet another friend has got engaged, the thing is to go back to God and say, Lord, this is hard. I find this difficult, but I trust you. And I know that what you have for me is right and good. And you only have the best for me. But that takes action. And it doesn't come easily. It's not our default. You've been longing to get a job. I was talking to someone the other day and they said they had applied for 80 jobs and still had no job. And you get another rejection letter. It's challenging to go and say, Lord, I am choosing now to trust you. I know that you will lead me and you will guide me. And I choose to believe that. Thank you that you've heard my prayer. When you're longing to have a baby and your good friends announce that they're expecting one, it's hard to go back to the Lord again and say, Lord, please, you heard my prayer, but I know that you are sufficient and I choose to trust in that. This takes great courage, but you know, as you choose to do that in every difficult circumstance you're in, you will see the Lord's hand upon you. You will know his comfort. Contentment has to be learned, and in the same way, that we learn anything it has to be learned. It takes a willingness and an effort to learn it. It takes action. For many of us, contentment sounds like a lovely concept. We want contentment, 
but we haven't actually considered that it's something we have to learn by applying ourselves and going after it. It isn't something that we can just wish into being. As he neared the end of his life, Paul said to Timothy in a letter that he had fought the good fight. He had finished the race. He had kept the faith. Fighting the good fight doesn't sound like an easy thing to do. Finishing the race doesn't sound like it's all roses. And neither is keeping the faith. Those are words of action, and they would have required a resolve on Paul's part to keep choosing to look at Jesus and trust him and thank him in every situation that he found himself in. I wonder, what's the one thing separating you from, from contentment tonight? How would you fill in this sentence? I'll be truly content when... When I'm healed, when I've got a job, when I've passed my exams, when I've finally bought a house, when I'm promoted. Just think about what your answer was and then ask yourself, if that thing doesn't ever happen and my situation doesn't change, could I still be happy? If you feel, no, I couldn't, recognize that that's discontentment raising its head, go to the Lord with it. Tell him all about it. And tell him that you choose to trust him in this situation that you're in at the moment. A short-term missionary went on a mission to Tobago. On the last day of the mission, he led worship in a leper colony. He asked if anyone had a favorite song. And a woman turned to him, and he saw the most disfigured face that he had ever seen. Various parts of her face were missing, and on one of her hands, she had no fingers at all. And she asked, could we sing Count Your Many Blessings? And the missionary started the song, but he couldn't finish it. And someone later said to him, I don't suppose you'll ever be able to sing that song again, will you? And he said, oh no, I'll sing it again. I'll just never sing it in quite the same way. Such contentment is learned. We're not born with it. We also need to learn contentment in our times of plenty. It's very often the case that the people who have the most are the least content and want more, which is extraordinary, but that's the way it is. A multimillionaire was once asked, how much money is enough? And he replied, just a little bit more. There are millionaires who are miserable and people in poverty who are full of joy. And we, by comparison to many, many people in this world, are almost millionaires. And there are probably more people in poverty that are content than there are rich people who are content. But what Paul, Paul is saying is that contentment is not dependent on our circumstances. When Paul had little, his focus was on the Lord. When he had plenty, his focus was on the Lord. And most people, including the people in the survey that I mentioned at the beginning, long for what the Apostle Paul had, a lasting contentment, a deep down soul-satisfying contentment where no circumstance could rock him. But that kind of contentment can only come from within. And it has only one source. And that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that leads me on to my third point. Contentment comes through knowing who you are in Christ. It comes through relationship. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, Paul says in verse 13. 
Contentment comes from being rooted in our relationship with Jesus. And Paul was very clear, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. He loved Jesus and he lived to please him. He was like the man that Jesus talked about in the parable, who found a pearl of such beauty and worth, and he sold everything he had to buy that one pearl. It was everything he wanted in life. Pleasing Jesus and living for him was what Paul's life was all about. He loved him more than anything else. We're called to do the same. Whatever our circumstances, we know that we don't deserve anything that we have in Christ. Because of his death on the cross, we're free to be in friendship with God forever. We're part of his family. We are people, each one of us individually, who are forgiven. We are chosen. We are loved. We are secure. We know that we have eternal life ahead of us when we follow him. Our treasures in Christ are incomparable. There is nothing that compares in value to what we have been given through Jesus' death on the cross. We are so, so rich. Malcolm Muggeridge was a journalist and author who became a Christian in his 60s. And um, he was a man who was very successful. And when he became a Christian, his life was radically transformed. This is what he wrote. I may, I suppose, regard myself, or pass for being, as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the internal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heeded for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet, I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing. A positive impediment measured against one draught of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty irrespective of who or what they are. The greatest treasure we will ever have is our relationship with Jesus. The psalmist put it like this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It was that love relationship with Jesus that gave Paul contentment. Everything else came out of that. How can we know godly contentment? Well, I'd like to finish by highlighting four steps to knowing it in our own lives. First, first of all, make sure you're living and growing in an authentic relationship with Jesus. Is loving and serving him your first priority in life? Contentment comes as we grow to love him. Watchman Nee once said, I have never met a soul who has set out to satisfy the Lord and has not been um, satisfied himself. I've never met a soul who set out to satisfy the Lord and not been satisfied himself. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness 
everything else will be given to you as well. But put your focus in the right place. Have you wandered away and lost your first love for him? If so, can I urge you, come back to him tonight. If you know that there's business to do, maybe you, you need to ask forgiveness for something. Do that tonight before you leave here. Contentment comes by letting go of the past, of both our successes, not living in the shadow of them for the rest of our lives, or our failures. Paul wrote, brothers, I don't consider myself to have taken hold, hold of the prize, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, he didn't look back. And we can't ever hope to gain contentment while holding on to past failures and beating ourselves up over them either our own failures or others. And this doesn't mean ignoring wrongs that have been done or wrongs that have been done to us and forgetting them. It means dealing with them, forgiving others when they've hurt us, confessing things to God of which we're ashamed and know that we need his forgiveness. True forgiveness means seeing things clearly. It means being honest and real about them, taking responsibility for them where appropriate and then releasing them to God and leaving them with him. And you know, that might take a bit of time, and we might need a bit of help from others along the way. But being real with God, having that authentic relationship with him and others, and living in forgiveness, keeping short accounts with others, will lead to freedom and contentment. Thirdly, contentment comes by cultivating a thankful heart. It drives your focus to the Lord. And thanksgiving is, first of all, a matter of obedience. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I know there's a, there's a home group that meets and every time they meet, every week, they start their meeting just going around and looking for 10 things that they can thank God for. When you meet with friends, look to see things that you can thank God for. And then lastly, be a giver. Learn to be a giver in every way. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that God loves a hilarious or cheerful giver. I mean, to be honest, the image that that strikes up is quite hilarious in itself. Um, a man called Godfrey David wrote a biography of the Duke of Wellington, and he wrote this. I found an old ledger that showed how the Duke spent his money. It was a far better clue to what he thought was really important than the reading of his letters or speeches. I wonder if you were to show your most recent bank statement to a friend, what do you think they would conclude were the things that you really valued in life? When you're looking outwards and you're concentrating on others, it drives out discontent. Contentment comes as we seek to bless and we look for opportunities to build others up. Paul tells us to be preoccupied with the well-being of others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, Consider others better than yourselves. Be a giver in every way. And you know, as we do that, Paul says, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That's a promise, and it's also Paul's testimony. When you seek God's kingdom and his righteousness, he's promised that everything else will fall into place. Only one thing is needful that you and I seek his face. And we can know that when we taste his goodness, 
we shall not want. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us, for your son Jesus, and for all that we are and have in him. Give us eyes to see those riches won for us on the cross, and give us hearts that brim over with worship, thanksgiving, and praise. Lord, may we, like Paul, learn the secret of contentment as we live our lives with you as our center and our all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.